You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from a concussion? Concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic to find all of the local professionally trained concussion clinicians in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation, and will be able to quickly determine the root cause of your symptoms and work with you to develop a plan to get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving your symptoms, you can't ever hope to relieve them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and the net promoter score as judged by real patients is higher than Amazon, Netflix, and Apple. Completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic. You won't regret it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 82. I am your host, Dr. Cameron Marshall. Today's topic is on concussions and fatigue. Fatigue is one of the most common symptoms following concussion, and it is one that is uh, difficult to get rid of and one that patients often describe as kind of one of those lingering symptoms that um, tends to stay with them even other even after other symptoms may have gone away. Um, it's also one of the symptoms that's very common immediately after injury. Within the first few hours after concussion, people will often report feeling extremely fatigued. And it is one that can present or be persistent in patients that have chronic symptoms for months to even years later. Why is this? Why do you feel so tired? Why are you exhausted after even the simplest of tasks? And what are some things you can do to fight it and help to get over it? Well, it's something that we still don't fully understand, but we there are some theories that kind of lend themselves uh, to some of the ideas around fatigue and some things that might be helpful in helping you to get over that particular uh, symptom. So at different stages of concussion, we feel fatigued for different reasons. I'm going to talk about each stage independently um, and and that should help shed some light on you, uh, on your case or on your patient's cases, depending on what stage of concussion they are in. So in the acute stage, meaning like right after you get concussed, people will typically report feeling very fatigued within the first few hours after injury. And anyone who's ever been around an athlete or somebody else who's had a concussion will often uh, report or notice that their their athletes feel very tired or they feel very tired after concussion and all they want to do is sleep. Now, there's a reason for this is because of what concussion ultimately results in is this excitatory thing that happens inside the brain. So the brain undergoes a lot of neuron firing. So there's a lot of activity happening in the brain at the point of concussion impact. The net result of that is that you're actually burning more energy than you're creating. 
because part of what happens in concussion is you get this calcium influx into the cell. So calcium makes its way into the cell after the concussion injury and calcium gets into the mitochondria, which is our cells energy production center. So the mitochondria is what takes the oxygen that we breathe in as well as the, the, the glucose molecules from the food that we eat and it turns it into a molecule called ATP. That ATP is our energy molecule. So the mitochondria is otherwise referred to as you know the lungs uh, or the respiratory center or the energy production center of our cells. Calcium, when it gets inside the cell, has a high affinity for mitochondria, meaning it really, really likes mitochondria. For whatever reason, it likes to get inside and disrupt the mitochondria's ability to create energy. So after a concussion, you have this big excitatory phase, all, this, all these brain cells firing all at the same time, which is burning a lot of energy. But at the same time, you have calcium coming into those cells and disrupting their ability to make more energy. So now what you have is an energy mismatch. You're burning more energy than you're creating and so you're going to start to feel very fatigued and tired. So that's in the acute phase. There's kind of a physiologic reason why people might feel tired. So what can you do about this? Well, the original idea was to rest, right? Anything you do that's burning energy is potentially detrimental to you. So you want to do everything you can to conserve energy. And this became the idea behind rest, right? Take two weeks off work, sit in a dark room, don't even expose yourself to light because that will stimulate neurons firing and that will burn more energy and so on and so on and so on. What we've realized now is that although that may be helpful in the very, very short term within the first 24 to 48 hours, it actually becomes detrimental to you in the long run. Uh, due to things like physical deconditioning and blood flow impairments and that type of thing. So the recommendation is still to kind of rest a little bit in the initial stages, but not complete absolute rest. It's more like take it easy, but still keep somewhat active in terms of like going for walks and things like that, but don't necessarily go out and go full bore with, you know, full exercise routines or anything like that. All right. So what seems to be with rest is that in the short term, it may have some benefit, but in the long term, it's actually really, really detrimental for your recovery. So there's really a balance here. Okay. So I want to get that point across. What else can you do? Well, the next thing is exercise. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that exercise could be detrimental if you're burning energy. Well, here's the thing. This is an interesting one because it's one of those things, exercise, although it does burn energy while you're exercising, in the long run, it actually leads to having more energy. So as you get in more shape, you end up having more energy rather than less energy. So although it may burn energy initially, it actually creates more energy in the long, uh, in the long term. So similar to how rest is you know, short-term gain for long-term loss, Exercise might be short-term loss for long-term gain. Um, so you might have some short-term negative consequences such as uh, you know, fatigue and maybe some soreness. However, in the long-term, it's going to be very beneficial to your outcome. The problem here with exercise is we don't know how much or how hard to exercise, especially in the first early days after concussion injury. 
So recent research has been done showing that exercise, even early on in the recovery, is actually beneficial to your recovery. It can speed your recovery up. There was recently a randomized control trial that was done at the University of Buffalo that put people on treadmills as early as four days after their concussion. They found that it was safe to do so and it actually, once they established a proper exercise protocol for those individuals, um, they actually recovered faster than people that were given a placebo treatment, which was just simply stretching, doing a stretching program. So more of the rest phase, doing some light stretching, that wasn't beneficial at all, but people that were actually given an exercise protocol to do cardio-based exercise based on their treadmill test results improved and got better faster. So exercise seems to be beneficial. Now, the earliest they were doing this was at day four. So what about in the very, very early stages, right after the injury in that first 24 to 48 hours? Well, we don't really know. And there's there was one recent study that was done out of the University of Calgary that found that people who engaged in moderate to heavy exercise in the first few days after concussion actually fared worse in their recovery. People that did light exercise in those initial few days fared better in their recovery. So it seems like if I'm going to kind of summarize this rest versus exercise thing, in the initial kind of 24 to 48 hours, you're going to be fatigued. So you can take it easy during that period of time, but you don't want to have complete rest in your bed or anything like that. You want to still be up and moving around and go for walks. So light exercise. Don't do anything more strenuous than the light exercise. At this point in time, that may change as more evidence emerges, but at this point in time, light exercise in those initial few days seems to be beneficial. After it's been four days or so, you should be going in to see somebody who can put you on a treadmill and run you through a treadmill test and actually give you a specific protocol because that's been found to be safe, but also speed your recovery. So if I had an athlete in front of me and I wanted to optimize the recovery, I would give them that exact same advice. You had a concussion, okay? Take it easy for a day or two, but I want you to still be mobile, moving around, go for light walks, etc. After a few days, come back and see me. I'm going to put you on the treadmill and I'm going to give you a specific exercise protocol to follow. And you're going to do that, which will hopefully then speed your recovery even further beyond that. So right now, that seems to be the best evidence-based approach to uh, optimizing a patient's recovery. Some other things that will help in the recovery of the early stages, and some of this stuff actually may need, may need to be done almost as a preventative or pre-injury measure to help improve your outcome after. Now there's not a ton of scientific evidence on this stuff yet, but what I'm talking about is diet and supplementation. So having things like sugar, although that may temporarily increase energy or give you some sort of boost, you're going to have a a, a drop after that, right? So you're going to get spikes and drops uh, in your blood sugar, which is ultimately not going to be a helpful thing for you. Having a high carb meal is going to make you feel fatigued and groggy as well. So it's kind of the same thing, right? Sugar, carbs, same thing. Having balanced meals with good protein intake, good fat intake, um, eating foods that are most mostly, you know, um, uh, vegetables, high quality meats, that type of thing, just kind of a nice balanced um uh, meal is going to be better for you in the long run than having anything that's kind of just simple carbs. Supplements that may have some benefit but require more research are things like magnesium. So magnesium is an, um, an element that is deficient in most people. 
It's a mineral that's most people, we used to get it from leafy greens and things like that. However, due to kind of modern farming practices, it's one of those things that it's not um, as readily available in our food sources anymore. So a lot of people are deficient in magnesium. If you're an athlete and you're sweating, you're also sweating out these minerals and so you're becoming more depleted from magnesium. So having deficient magnesium um, is something that can lead to things like muscle cramping and things like that because magnesium and calcium kind of offset each other. So remember what I said, calcium is what gets into cells. Well, if you have adequate levels of magnesium, magnesium can kind of block calcium from getting in. If you are deficient in magnesium, you're going to get more calcium coming in when the injury occurs. So magnesium is one of those things that if I have athletes that play high-risk sports or involved in MMA or hockey or things, I always will recommend that they're supplementing with magnesium because having an adequate level of magnesium may actually block some of the calcium coming in to the cell, which may offer some sort of protective effect. Um, or may diminish the amount of energy that you lose, uh, may diminish the amount of mitochondrial damage that happens when the injury occurs. Um, you know, so there could be some benefit. And the thing is, there's really no risk in taking it, um, and there could be some benefit. So more research is needed on that, but it may be something of note. Another one is creatine. So creatine is a supplement that's normally associated with uh, bodybuilders. And the reason is because creatine is kind of uh, a form of ATP. So ATP is the energy molecule that I was talking about. Creatine is basically an exogenous form of ATP that you can you can take. And the reason why bodybuilders might take it or, is because it allows you to have more energy in the cells so that you can pump out the last few reps. So normally where you would fatigue, uh, you can't do it. If you're on creatine and you're taking creatine regularly, you might be able to get a few extra reps out and that will increase your muscle hypertrophy and uh, will ultimately make you stronger. So creatine is one of those ones that a lot of athletes will take for various reasons because it improves strength and athletic performance. But because it's also a form of ATP, there's been some animal research that has found that it, it can assist with the recovery following concussion because it gives you more energy levels. Uh, not a lot of human studies um, on this. So again, something that uh, it is a very safe supplement to take. Um, there's a way to do it. And this is one that I would probably recommend to athletes that are, that are participating in sports as long as it's okay within your sport to take it, be taking it before um, the injury occurs because having an adequate level may help with the recovery process because all this stuff has to be done fairly quickly. Uh, another thing that may be helpful, uh, at least in the early stages, might be might be caffeine, um, coffee, things like that. I will always recommend that caffeine only be taken before noon because it has a half-life that uh, if you take it in the afternoon will keep you up at night, which will then have a counterproductive effect on sleep. So that's kind of in the acute stages. So generally you want to kind of have a few days of just light exercise and kind of more resting, doing anything that's not provoking symptoms to a significant degree, then after that you want to start in with an exercise program that's specific to you depending on how you perform on a specific treadmill test. So um, find a clinic that does that for you and that'll get you through. Now I'm sure most of you people that are watching this right now and are listening to this on the podcast are in the chronic state. You've had symptoms for some time and fatigue is one of those symptoms. Um, so 
I'm going to talk about why that might be. So there's some recent evidence, and I mean very recent, as in published this past week, talking about how the mitochondria may have some long-term um, damage or dysfunction even in the chronic state. Now, these, this study that I'm talking about was only done in mice that had multiple kind of back-to-back injuries. So we can't necessarily extrapolate that to a human that's had one concussion, uh, but there is some evidence to suggest that multiple concussions may create some sort of mitochondrial dysregulation even long after the event, which is more similar to the acute phase, which would then probably you'd want to be handling that to try and re-kickstart that mitochondria to get that going. Um, but that's a different thing. Most of the evidence on this suggests that concussion and the mitochondria dysfunction that happens with concussion is a temporary thing. So something that happens in the first couple weeks and then the mitochondria resets, ATP production kicks up, energy production kicks up and kind of normalizes, right? So it's a completely reversible phenomenon that happens in the early stages, at least as far as we know now. So why would you still be having fatigue? Why are you still so tired after concussion? If the mitochondrial thing is gone and the energy production piece is back, why are you still feeling fatigued? So there's a few reasons. And I'm going to go through each of them here. I have one, two, three, four, five, six. Six potential reasons. So number one is vestibular and ocular motor impairment. So your vestibular system is your balance system. Your ocular motor is your eyes and how your eyes work together. So your vestibular system, your eyes, and also your neck and your proprioceptive systems tell you a lot about where you are in space. If all three of those systems, vestibular, ocular motor, and um, somatosensory and, and proprioceptive are, are giving you congruent signals, meaning that they're all three of them are saying the same thing, your brain doesn't have to work as hard to kind of you know, know where you are. So everything feels comfortable, it feels easy, everything feels calm, and you can do whatever tasks you're doing without giving much thought to anything else. But if you have vestibular or ocular motor impairments, either due to injury or maybe pre-existing or whatever, that will make you feel off balance, it'll make your eyes feel weird, it'll make everything in your environment feel uh, uneasy or off. Well, if that's the case, your central nervous system, your brain trying to integrate all these signals that are telling them different things is very taxing on your system. So now you're burning a lot of energy just trying to figure that out. So that becomes effortful. So now if you're trying to do a task, whether it be a task at work, um, going out to a grocery store and navigating your environment and all these other things, you're having to work way harder to figure out all that stuff because now your sensory integration processing is taking up a lot of energy just to do that. And then you're still trying to do the task you're trying to do, which makes everything way more complex and way more difficult. So it's there's this concept called cognitive vestibular interactions where people with vestibular or disorders actually can show cognitive impairments. Even though there's nothing theoretically wrong with you know the brain or cognitive processing, it's the fact that their vestibular dysfunction is um, not is, is affecting their ability to remember things, ability to think clearly, and ability to multitask because they're just spending so much effort on trying to navigate their environment and feel you know comfortable where they are that 
trying to focus on anything else is just way too difficult. So if you're if you are fatigued and you feel off visually or feel a little bit off balance or dizzy, this might be one of the reasons why. And so by getting that stuff dealt with, meaning the visual and vestibular stuff, it may make you feel at ease, which then makes you have to burn less energy when trying to do something. So that's something that can that can help. The next concept along a similar line is something called default mode interference. So you, I've talked about this before on, on previous episodes. Default mode interference, you have two main brain networks. You have your default mode network, which is your just your self-talk. It's the kind of, it's the default. It's, it's also what's known as your ego. So when you're kind of just sitting there doing nothing, daydreaming, your ego is the self-talk saying like, oh, I got to pick that up from the grocery store later. Or what did I, you know, where did I misplace my, my phone? Or, you know, you're, you're just kind of self-talking through things. You're thinking about random things. You're not necessarily doing anything task specific. You have another network called your executive network. Your executive network is what is the task at hand, right? You're doing a math test. You are dialed in to that. You're doing whatever task you're doing and you're 100% focused on that. I'm sitting here talking to all of you. My entire focus is on this right now. I'm not thinking about things I have to do later or anything else. I'm focused on this right now. That's my executive network. These two networks, the executive network and the default mode network, cannot be active or should not be active at the same time. If they are both active at the same time, you get what's called default mode interference, where as you're trying to focus on a task, you keep having random thoughts coming into your mind, which is distracting you from the task, which is going to not only affect your performance on that task, but also now you're using twice as much brain power to get the same or even a worse result. So this is what's called default mode interference. In patients with persistent concussion symptoms, when they do studies on fMRI, where they'll put them into the fMRI machine and they'll look at brain activation patterns and which regions of the brain are active, if they give you a task, if you're a normal healthy control person and they give you a task, what you'll see is when you're in the fMRI tube and you're trying to perform a task, your default mode network will shut off and your executive network will turn on. If you have a patient with persistent concussion symptoms and you put them into the fMRI tube, what you'll see is that the default mode network doesn't shut off and that and the executive network tries to kick on and so you got activation of both networks simultaneously. So now you're burning twice as much energy to get the same or even potentially a worse result on your cognitive task. So that is going to burn energy. Here's the thing. They find the same thing, this default mode interference, they find the same thing with people with generalized anxiety disorders and post-traumatic stress disorders. So one way to shut off the default mode network interference is by reducing your anxiety. So remember what I said, the default mode network is also called the ego. It is, it is the, your sense of self. It's who you are. It's your self-talk. It's your little voice. This is the ego. The purpose of talk therapy and therapeutic interventions on the psychological front usually is to try and penetrate the ego, right? Try to get into that self-talk. Try to, you know, help to make that self-talk more positive and more appropriate um, for, you know, your day, your life, for reducing stress and everything else. Patients that have 
anxiety that's incurable because like they've tried medications, they've done all this stuff. People generally with like end of life anxiety, they have terminal cancer and they're and they're going to die and they're afraid of dying. They'll have anxiety around that and medications just typically won't work. Talk therapy typically won't work. What's being done now, there's research now being done on um, um, hallucinogenic medication like psilocybin, LSD, MDMA. So these are the kind of hallucinogenic class of medications that were you know studied way back in the day and then became more of like popular culture type drugs um, but these drugs when they study them are actually very effective for people with anxiety that's not treatable by any other means people that are not able to get rid of their anxiety in any other way will actually have a very profound effect by having one guided session with like psilocybin which is otherwise known as magic mushrooms with a therapist having one guided session has been equivalent to having 10 years of therapy and when they first started trying to figure out why this was working um, researchers would take these patients on these medications and they would put them into an fmri tube and what they were expecting to see was just like activation of the brain going crazy and activation of all these different networks and what they actually found was the executive network was extremely active. The default mode network was completely silent. So all of that self-talk that's going on inside your mind, which is your own voice, which is a lot of times the things that holds us back from doing things, it's, it is our anxiety, it was completely shut off. So the idea here is then if, if you can shut that off through these medications, you're able to penetrate the ego and have a profound effect on somebody's internal psychological workings. What's interesting about all of this is that they also find the exact same phenomena in people that are experienced meditators. So I'm not condoning you to go out necessarily and start taking magic mushrooms or anything like that, but if you get really good at meditation, you can have the same type of effect where you can actually shut down the default mode network, activate your executive network, right? Because meditation is all about mindfulness and having your experience. You're looking at everything, your breathing rate, you're feeling what it's like to, to feel your breath through your abdomen. You're feeling, you know, your skin, your hands, feeling what it's like to have, you know, a head and a face. And you're doing all these things, which is completely in your experience, which is your executive network that shuts off your default mode network and if you get really good at this you can actually activate this throughout your day which is one way to reduce this default mode interference so now rather than burning multiple sources of energy and having both networks active if you can figure out a way to reduce your default mode network then you can potentially conserve energy and be more proficient at whatever tasks you're performing so that's that one next is inflammation. So inflammation, um, I've also talked about this one in previous podcasts, but having uh, this gut-brain axis phenomenon where uh, the foods we eat can create this systemic inflammatory response which can then go up to the brain and make you feel foggy and fatigued. Um, it can also cause things like anxiety, low mood, trouble sleeping, etc. So you know this when you have a big meal and you feel kind of fatigued after, feel sleepy. Um, that might be due to kind of you know this post-food inflammation that can that can occur. 
Foods that are more kind of, you know, quote unquote pro-inflammatory. So usually the foods that are more unhealthy for us tend to be more pro-inflammatory. Um, so this is a way you can reduce your inflammation and have more energy is just by having a better diet. So uh, like I said, more of a balanced meal, mostly plants, healthy meats, which include grass-fed, free-range, antibiotic-free, hormone-free, because all of those things, like the hormones and the antibiotics that are in there, will your body will mount some sort of immune response to that. So having meats that are a little bit cleaner, um, grass-fed versus grain-fed, because grains are pro-inflammatory, and that is into the meat that you're eating. So eating healthy high quality meats and veggies, avoiding things like refined sugar, which is also extremely pro-inflammatory, getting good exercise, right? Exercise in the short term. So after a bout of exercise, you'll have an increased inflammation as your muscle undergoes repair and, and, and regeneration. But in the long run, exercising regularly actually reduces your body's inflammation. So exercise is an important part of concussion recovery for a number of reasons, blood flow being one, reducing inflammation being another, and having better sleep, which is the next part of inflammation, getting a good night's sleep. Obviously, sleep and fatigue are gonna go hand in hand. If you're not sleeping well, you're gonna be tired. And that's, that's easy as that gets. But I also did a recent episode on sleep, which was episode 77 of the podcast. And I'm gonna give a quick summary right now of sleep. Remember I said the energy molecule is ATP. That stands for adenosine triphosphate. So as you burn ATP throughout your day, as you burn energy throughout your day, you get a buildup of adenosine, which is kind of the byproduct of burning off adenosine triphosphate. So as you go throughout your day, you're burning, you're, you're accumulating adenosine as you're burning energy. As that adenosine builds up in your system, you also are getting inflammation building up throughout the day. As adenosine and inflammation build up throughout the day, you build up what's called sleep debt. So that's when you start getting tired at, towards the end of the day because you've built up so much inflammation and adenosine that you're building up this sleep debt, which is making you tired. Then in the absence of light, when it gets dark, so the sun goes down and you reduce all the lights and dim the lights in your house, you release melatonin. Melatonin is what initiates sleep onset. As you're sleeping throughout the night, you go through different sleep cycles. You go through light sleep, which is kind of the fast wave, and then you go through deep, slow wave sleep, which is the restorative sleep. In your deep sleep is when you replenish your adenosine levels and you reduce your inflammation. That requires certain things, right? You have to have low stress levels, you have to have good quality sleep night after night after night and consistent to be able to get into that deep sleep. Because if you're just kind of surface level light sleeping, you have high stress levels, things like that, if you're not getting into that deep sleep, you're actually not, you're not um, getting rid of that inflammation that's built up throughout the day. And then you wake up the next morning, you do it all over again, you're just compounding that. So in order to reduce that inflammation further, you have to have really good sleep. As you go through the night and you're, you're getting rid of that inflammation, you're, you're building back up those adenosine stores, you're also releasing cortisol. Cortisol is your stress hormone. Cortisol peaks in the morning and that's what wakes you up. So if you have cortisol going on at night, which is a stress hormone, so if you're feeling stressed at night or anxious, you're releasing cortisol at night, which is going to keep you awake and prevent you from sleeping. So sleep is an important component. If you want more on sleep, check out my episode 77 on 
sleep and things you can do to kickstart a better night's sleep. Uh, the fifth one is anxiety, and we kind of touched on this on the variety of different categories, but if you have reduced sleep, you will have increased anxiety. If you have increased anxiety, you will have default mode interference, which will burn more energy. Also, if you're anxious, you will be kind of in that fight or flight mode, which is also just more taxing on your nervous system because you're anxious, which is going to burn more energy in itself and make you way more tired. Um, so find ways to reduce your anxiety, whether that be meditation, whether that be talk therapy, exercise, a combination of all three, or in some cases you may need medication to help reduce this. And finally, number six, physical and cognitive deconditioning. So as the old concussion therapy used to be rest and do nothing and when your symptoms were still there you just had to rest more and don't do anything that provokes your symptoms because that's bad for you, which is complete shit. So don't listen to that. Um, people have developed what's called kinesiophobia, where kinesiophobia is the fear of movement or the fear of exercise because you're afraid that doing exercise is going to provoke things or make it worse, so you avoid it. But by avoiding exercise, you have deconditioning physically, you have reduced blood flow, and over time, your energy levels go get worse and worse and worse. So let's say you have a line, a threshold here of like, this is how much energy I have. If you don't exercise, that energy level gets lower and lower and lower and you just get gradually more and more out of shape. So now the line where you get tired is way down here. So now even just doing a little bit, it doesn't it, you get super, super tired. So one way to counteract this is to start exercising and go beyond that level and gradually build up your tolerance to exercise. The example I use time and time again with my patients is the marathon example, right? If I tried to go run a marathon right now without training, I wouldn't do very well. I would definitely not finish and I would probably die before the finish line. But if I made it a goal to run a marathon in a year from now, I could start training and slowly building up my tolerance to eventually be able to do that. So just because you can't go and do the exercise you used to do doesn't mean that you shouldn't be exercising. It means that you should find out where that threshold is and the way that you do this is through a proper treadmill test and then somebody will give you a, a good exercise protocol to follow where you gradually build that up and you build up your tolerance to the point where you're getting more energy, you're able to, that line gets pushed further and further away where you can get to it. There's another thing of cognitive deconditioning and this is due to cog cognophobia, which is the same as kinesiophobia, but cognophobia is the fear of using your brain for cognitive activities because you think that doing too much cognitively is going to set you back or make you worse. And so what, what do you do? You try not to use your brain. Well, your brain requires it to be used. Your, your body will adapt to the stress you put on it. There's a concept called neuroplasticity where the more you repeat and perform a task, the better you'll get at that task because you'll develop more neurons that are associated with that task and you'll get stronger and stronger at doing that. But this, the reverse is also applied and I think it happens much quicker. The more you avoid a certain task, the more you pull back from that task, your body will actually break these connections down because they're not needed anymore. Why do I have to be proficient at doing this task? Because I haven't done that task in six months and it starts to break these connections down. And you end up getting worse and worse and worse and worse. 
And this is what happens to people in this stage. They're given the improper advice immediately, which is rest and do nothing for two weeks. And that right away cascades this entire process of them going downhill and getting worse and worse and worse because anything they do that makes them feel a little bit worse, all of a sudden they become afraid of and they don't want to do it. And what does that do? It just brings the line closer to you. So now even the smallest little thing like going up a flight of steps is too much. So now you avoid stairs because it's too much. Well, guess what? You're not going to get better. You're going to get worse. And that's really the thing here. So in the initial stages, it seems that fatigue is related to a physiological process, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, etc. In the chronic state, there's a whole bunch of interactions that may be contributing to ongoing fatigue. The best way to get over this stuff, like I said, is deal with the physical problems like the vestibular, the visual, the proprioceptive stuff. Deal with the mental health side the anxiety, right? Try things like meditation, etc. And the other one is physical activity and proper sleep and diet. All right. So in order to uh, improve your fatigue, you need to address all of these areas. You can't just pick one and say, well, I'm eating well, so that should be enough. No, you have to kind of go after all of them and do them all simultaneously. Don't do vision therapy for a bit and then go over and try you know, vestibular therapy and then go try this over here. You have to do them all kind of simultaneously because every single one of them works together and they're all kind of chipping away at the same time. If you go and do one at a time, you're gonna, it's not gonna work well for you. You have to kind of hit, hit them all at the same time. Um, so without addressing these areas, your central nervous system will continue to be overworked and drained with seemingly minimal or trivial tasks. So if you do need help in figuring this out, go to completeconcussions.com, click on the blue button that says find a clinic and find a clinic in your area to work with. They'll put you on the treadmill, they'll check your visual, your vestibular, all that stuff. They'll give you a diet plan and they'll walk you through the step-by-step -step approach in order to get rid of these symptoms. Questions? In what way? Yeah, I mean, if you have uncontrolled sleep apnea and you're not sleeping well, because sleep apnea, you're waking up several times throughout the night, um, you're not going to get into that deep sleep. You require some time to get into that deep sleep. And if you're constantly waking due to sleep apnea, that's obviously going to create problems. And this is one of the reasons why sleep apnea is also associated with a lot of heart conditions, heart attacks, and things like that, because you're not clearing inflammation, because you're not getting into that deep sleep, right? Inflammation is the new the new thing, right? It's, it's the diabetes type 3 that they're talking about, right? Where a lot of chronic diseases are attributed to just chronic inflammation, because people are not sleeping well, they're anxious, they're not eating right, and all these things, right? So I think inflammation is really the key here. So if you do have sleep apnea, try to get it controlled as best as possible. CPAP machines, apparently they're getting a little more streamlined now um, and and are, are becoming a lot better for you. But just forced air will help you to keep the, the airways open and allow you to get into that deep restorative sleep that you need. Whoa, wait, 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 just one more thing before you go. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussion.com slash 
find-a-clinic to find all the local professionally trained concussion rehab individuals in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, management, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation. Uh, they're gonna work with you to try and find the root cause of your symptoms and then develop a treatment plan and approach to help get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving the symptoms, you can't ever help or hope to fix them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and have a higher net promoter score than Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. You will not regret it. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.